If you have a, a Bible with you, or if you've got it on your phone, it'd be really helpful if we could actually follow um, this passage through, because it is rather long. Um, you may be relieved to know I'm not going to read the whole lot, but what I'm going to do is read verses 1 to 6 of Daniel chapter 3, then skip down to verse 16 um, and read the end, and I'll summarise the little bit in the middle. If you've got a church Bible, we're on page 886. Daniel chapter 3, the image of gold and the blazing furnace, it's entitled. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. And then in the next verses, um, the music plays and the act of dedication, the act of worship takes place. Some astrologers then come before the king and they're basically coming to the king to tell tales on Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who, these Jewish exiles who refuse to bow down and worship. In verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar is furious, absolutely livid, with rage that people were turning against him, and the three men are brought before him. The whole ritual worship then happens again with all the same musical instruments, all the same paraphernalia. They're given the chance to bow down again, but they refuse. So we get to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent to the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisers, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, and he defied the king's command, and we will we were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save this way. Then he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Phew, a bit like a marathon, that passage. Let's pray again, and we'll ask the Lord to speak to us through it. Yeah, Lord, we thank you for this incredible event. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray now as we look at how this ancient um, narrative can speak into our hearts that you will, by your spirit, just soften us. Help us to be receptive to what it is you may say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Things rarely happen in life the same time twice, do they? Um, You can have one experience, and then you may have something very similar, but it won't feel the same, it won't look the same, it won't be the same. We're going on holiday, actually, later on today, um, and we're going to somewhere we've been before. I don't know if you've ever done that, because when we do that, I always go with that certain sense of trepidation. Is it going to be as good as it was last time? Will the management have changed? Will the food have changed? Am I setting myself up for a big disappointment? You'll see next week, if I'm smiling, it's been okay. If I'm sort of grimacing, it's been a disappointment. We're in the second leadership election for a PM in, I think, six weeks, is it? Seven weeks, something like that? It will not come with the same outcome. It will not happen the same way. Things in life rarely happen the same twice. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, we were in Daniel chapter 1. And we were seeing how, actually, Daniel and his friends refused to compromise by eating the food from the king's table. And we looked through all the reasons why that was compromise. Why to eat food from the king's table both brought defilement against the Jewish law, but also it was in effect that these Jewish exiles saying, look, we, we will serve Nebuchadnezzar. We will treat him as our overlord. But actually, what happens in chapter 1 is nothing bad happens as a result of that to Daniel and his friends. They get promoted. They get vegetables to eat. And they become healthier than the other people who were there with them. But then we forward wind to chapter 3, and we're now in a very different setting. But actually, the challenge is the same. The challenge is a challenge to remain faithful to God and to not compromise. But the outcomes are very, very different. You know, God's character never changes, does it? That is one of the promises of Scripture. You know, his love endures forever. That's what we started this service by saying. But actually, the circumstances we face shift and change almost daily. But how we react to God should stay the same. And so in these verses, I don't know if they sort of struck you as we read them, but it's a rather alarming spectacle that is happening. The king has made a golden image. This is a a portrait of Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if you actually look like that, but that's how he is portrayed in Babylonian literature and things. And he's made this image, and it's colossal. It's one of the biggest um, idols of the ancient world. Only slightly bigger was the Colossus of Rhodes. Um, If you want an idea of the size of this image, it's 20 feet shorter than the Statue of Liberty. Can you picture that in in your mind at the moment? If ever you've seen it, it's big. This isn't quite that big, but it's a big image. People will be able to see it. And he's put it out in a plane where there's nothing else around it. So this idol can be visible and it's tangible and he wants people to worship it. 
Now, one writer has said, actually, what this image symbolizes is the might of Babylon, the might of empire. He may even have had his own face carved onto the front of it. So that as people are worshipping, as he calls the nation round this idol to worship, they're almost worshipping him himself. You know, over the centuries, rulers have often used religion to bind people together, to oppress populations, and to try and generate a sense of unity. You know, that's what the Caesars of Rome did, isn't it? They would go around saying, we are God, or we are a God. You are to offer incense and worship to us. And for those early Christians who refused to do that, they would then be thrown to the lions. Even in our day-to-day, as we look at what happens in North Korea, we see how those personality cults are trying to bring people together, and they set leaders up in that place of almost worshipping them. Sadly, very sadly, and we do have to name this this morning, Jesus has been used for exactly those same purposes in some national settings, and we've seen the tragedy that happens when the gospel is distorted in that way. So what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's trying to use the worship of this idol to basically amass kingly power, to basically get everybody on the same page and everybody worshipping this enormous idol. And so all these various government officials are brought together, this long list that is then repeated. And as the music starts, it's not musical chairs, but you have to bow down. And if you don't do it, you get sent to the flames. Now, in this country, did you know that you could get fined up until 1888 if you didn't go to the Church of England services? They were called recusancy fines, and sometimes during history, you could get fined if you didn't go to church. This is a bit more extreme than what even happened in this country in the past. If you don't worship, you get sent to the furnace. This is the level of, of problems that these people are facing. And the writer of the book here is incredibly skillful. When I was reading it out, I don't know if you caught how preposterous this whole thing seems. And the the writer just repeats everything numerous times. And we get these huge long lists of officials, these huge long lists of instruments. And the whole situation is just about Nebuchadnezzar. It's not about even pagan worship. It's not about worshipping a god that people believed exists. It's just something the king has built and said, now you are to bow down and worship. What do you do as a worshipper of God in such a situation? Do you go away and pray on it and say, what should I do? Do you go away and philosophize or theologize with other believers and say, I'm not sure what our response is here? Well, actually, this would go against the first commandment. Do not have any other gods before me. There is no discussion here for these Jewish exiles. There is no need to go away and seek what to do. They just simply have to say, no, we will not bow down. We will not worship this idol that has been set up. And if you look at verse 16, you couldn't get a clearer, more direct response from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It says, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. And then comes the statement of confidence and faith in God. Just look at verse 18. The God who we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I don't know if you've been following the news over recent weeks. Quite a lot has happened, just in case you've been wondering. Um, and I don't know if you're on Twitter um, and you have political feeds coming into your Twitter account. Um, I'm just showing how boring I am. I have lots of them coming in because I quite like graphs. Graphs tend to help me to look at things, um, whereas numbers don't. And there we go. There's one of the graphs that you may have seen on the news over recent weeks. Pound hits a record low 
against the dollar. You can see it there going all the way down. And there have been graphs about political leaders as well, haven't there? Some have been going up like that, and some have been going down like that. And it's interesting, when a polling company asks questions, they're trying to work out what people think and what the general population is thinking. I just wonder, if you did a poll of your own heart at the moment, what's the confidence in God doing in your life? How confident are you in God? Is it doing that? Is it steady? Is it going up? Just think about that for a moment. If you were to do an honest appraisal of your own heart, is your confidence in God going down? Is it steady? Or is it going up? You see, I don't know about you, but I find so often my faith is dependent on circumstance. If I'm going through a good time, then my confidence in God creeps up. If times are a bit then my confidence starts to ebb away. Not so for Daniel's three friends. You see, they could have had a huge boost of confidence from all the events that happened in chapter 1, but there is nothing like a lit furnace and the flames threatening you to sharpen the mind. And they could have thought, yeah, okay, God, we, we can be this confident this far, but actually now the flames are lit. How confident are they actually going to be? Now, just think for a moment in our lives. You know, we are unlikely to face live flames. That is unlikely to be our trial. We are unlikely to be in a position where if we, don't, if we um, worship somebody other than Jesus, that we are going to face a furnace. But, you know, the Bible uses fire as a metaphor as well. The fire of trials in our life, the other situations that we face that buffet against us and that make us sort of doubt sometimes our faith. We find this verse in 1 Peter 1, verse 7. And Peter has been talking about the trials of life and what they do to us. And he says, trials that test the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found in you to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying is that actually suffering and trial, rather than be the things that draw us away from God, they can actually be the things that refine us and grow our confidence and faith in him. Have you been to Ikea recently? In Ikea, I don't know whether it's still there, we haven't been for a while, but you know those, those typical Ikea chairs that you get? I don't know what they're called, they have some fancy name. And there's a machine that is pressing up and down on them at the side, I don't know if you've been there and seen it, to test the chairs. And it says these chairs have been tested to something like 10,000 um, replicas of a human being standing and sitting. So that you know when you buy one of these chairs and you sit on it, you're not going to go through it and sit on the floor. It will hold you, and it will hold you for 10,000 times. don't know what happens on 10,001. You can perhaps try that one out. But that is, that is what testing does, isn't it? It proves that something is real. But sometimes when we are tested... When we can see life, we can then start to say, well, well, God, why? Why am I being tested? What is going on? Life can be hard, can't it? I'm sure all of us in this room today know that actually at times life can be really tough. Sometimes bad things happen. And in our world, collectively, at the moment, we have, we've been talking about this over recent weeks. We have had this collective trauma of pandemic that is still ongoing. There is a war that is still raging on the eastern flanks of Europe. There is rumor of war and war in other nations that sadly gets forgotten about. 
There is an economic downturn that we're all facing. You may be sat here this morning thinking, I don't know how I'm going to remortgage my house when my deal comes to an end. Or you may be thinking, I don't know how I'm going to pay my next energy bill. And then there's all those traumas that may be unique and personal to us, perhaps relational, or it might be um, somebody we've lost in recent years. And those are all real issues. They can't be wished away. They can't be smiled away or glossed over. The follower of Jesus is not immune from any of that. And sometimes it can be relatively easy when we face the trials and fire in our lives, in our own lives, to say, how can God claim to love me when this has happened? How can there be a loving God in a world of so much brokenness and pain? And sometimes we can end up doing the very opposite of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And we can chuck God out. And we can say, God, I can't even be with you because of what's going on. Now, I don't want to give glib answers to the questions of suffering this morning. That is a really problematic thing for us as Christians to discuss, to talk about, and to wrestle with. Can I point you in the direction of C.S. Lewis if this is something you want to explore in any more depth? The book, The Problem of Pain, really, really great book that sort of tackles some of these big issues about suffering head on. But our world is marred. It's broken by sin and by dislocation with God and with each other. These are all the things that we face. I don't know about you, but I love the Psalms. I, I love the way that in the Psalms, the, the writers of the Psalms, they don't gloss over life. They don't go through life and say, oh, well, just smile and everything will be, pretend it's all right. But they wrestle deeply with the problems that they're facing. They wrestle and they, they come. Sometimes you can almost hear the starts of the Psalmist screaming at God saying, why, why, why is this happening? And yet they'll often come back and say, yet still, will I trust in God who is my saviour? You know, I think we need to get much better at being real. I think sometimes, you know, in our style of church particularly, you know, we we are people of celebration. We're people who are forgiven, and it's right that we celebrate. But I just sometimes wonder, do we lament enough? Do we actually become real with God enough about the brokenness? And do we actually get on our knees before God and seek him? Well, these three friends, they are facing the flames. The immediate is very bleak for them. Now, they have some options. They could recant. They could worship before the image. And doing so would have totally compromised their faith. It would have meant that they disobeyed the first commandment. So that is not an option for them. They won't do that. Another option is they could make some elaborate excuse that when they bow down and worship, that they're actually going to, in their hearts and their minds, worship the Lord. You know, in a sort of, yeah, I'm going to do this, even though the people outside think I'm doing something else. Again, they won't do that either. They won't be seen by other people to be compromised. So what do they do? They simply trust God. They simply trust God. Not that God will necessarily save them. They know God is perfectly capable of saving them. But they say, even if he does not, we will not bow down to the image. Even if he does not. They will trust God and his bigger story. Remember, these are exiles from Judah. These were three men who were miles away from home, whose homeland lay in ruins, who all the promises of temple and worship were were destroyed behind them. But they would still cling on to the greater narratives. 
they would still remember that they were people who God had rescued in the exodus from Egypt. They were still in the line of people from Abraham who'd been called by God, Isaac and Jacob. They were still the people who the prophets had been sent to. And they were still people who had had the forever promises of God spoken over them. And their statement of faith is basically the ultimate statement, isn't it? I will cling on to God. I will trust God, come what may. You know, today we live on the other side of God's promises, don't we? We live on the side of God's promises where God has sent the Messiah. He has fulfilled so much of the Old Testament. Yeah, there are still promises in the future of Jesus' return. But Jesus has come. He has died for us. He has been risen for us. The greatest enemy of humanity ultimately is not what this world can throw at us, but what sin has brought. And the ultimate of what sin does is it kills us. It brings death. And yet Jesus has taken this on and has destroyed it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their ending could have been in the flames. But they actually look beyond that, to the God who has a forever future. You know, if you were here last week, Sam was reminding us of a quote, I think it's a Bear Grylls quote, that says, in this life, we don't need to be people of a hopeless ending because we can be people of endless hope. Endless hope. Is that resonating in your heart today? Are we people of endless hope? As followers of Jesus, we have had that spoken over us. Having endless hope is something real and tangible to cling on to when the fires of trial burn around us. But you know, this passage has even more to offer because something incredible happens in the flames. The three friends, they refuse to bow down to the image. In verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar is furious. Here are three Jewish exiles and they are taking on the might of Babylon. And so the furnace is made as hot as possible, so hot that it kills the soldiers who go up to it. Now, without being too graphic, I'm sure you can imagine that a human body doesn't last long in a furnace. And if you drop somebody into that kind of flames, they die painfully and quickly. But here, in verses 23 to 25, Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet and he sees four men walking around. Look at verse 25. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. What on earth is going on? What is going on? Well, the first thing is that God has saved them from the fire. He saved the three men. That is the obvious thing. They are, not, they are still in the trial, but they are not being harmed by the trial. It will not shape them to that degree. But there is a fourth figure in the flames. Who on earth is this? And what are they doing in the flames. The only indication of who this might be is actually from Nebuchadnezzar himself when he says, it looks like one who is the son of the gods. Now, some writers over the years have said, well, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, that actually God himself turns up in the fire. Other people have suggested that this is the angel of the Lord, that this is an angelic visitor who comes and offers a tangible presence of God in the midst of trial. Ultimately, we don't know. The Bible doesn't give us the right to make a conclusion there. But actually, what we can say is in the midst of trial, God shows up. In the midst of the flames, God appears and ministers to these three people. God is in the habit of that, isn't he? And turning up in unexpected places where we don't really look for him and where um, we've not sought him. And we see that through Scripture time and time again. Elijah, 
after he'd done the, the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Basically, he goes into this deep depression. God shows up. He shows up in the stillness, and he feeds him, and he ministers to him. Peter, in Acts chapter 12, Peter is bound and is in prison. What happens? Well, an angel shows up. God shows up. He is released, and he goes off, and he carries on with the Lord's work. The disciples, after the resurrection, they're scared, they're fearful, they don't know what's going on. Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears, the incarnate Son of God appears, and cooks them breakfast. Bit of a theme here of God cooking for people. You know, doing the things that we need as human beings. That basic, um, tangible things that we need. As Christians, you know, we shouldn't be surprised when God shows up. We shouldn't be surprised. It may not be as dramatic as this, but it may be. Let's not shut our minds and our hearts to the miracles that God can do. But sometimes it can just be in a small act of grace that God does. A small act of kindness in the midst of trouble. You know, as I look back through my life, the times when actually I've noticed God turning up unexpectedly have been in those fire situations. You know, it might be you're waiting for medical results and you're not sure what is going to happen. You don't know what the future holds. And suddenly God shows up and you have this overwhelming sense of peace that he is with you no matter what happens. Or it might be that perhaps you're going through a time of doubt and then suddenly God sends somebody along to walk beside you who is a person of faith who gently builds you up and encourages you forward. Or it might be when you suddenly pray one of those quick arrow prayers, and I'm always a fan of arrow prayers, you know, Lord, just help me. And then, surprise, surprise, you find God actually does. And he steps in, and God unexpectedly works a miracle in a situation. Now, you may be looking at the world today, or your own life, and saying, actually, Lord, that's not good enough. I just want the flames to stop. I want the trial to stop. The Bible never promises that. But what it does promise is that when we're in the fire, God shows up. When we're walking through the difficult times, God is there with us. In chapter 3 of Daniel, the flames don't go out. They're there. I don't know what kind of experience these three thought they were having in the fire, but it does actually say they pass through them ultimately unharmed. They get through the other side. They're unharmed, but I doubt they were unchanged. The fire will have transformed them. It will have grown their faith. It will have changed who they are. And actually, they get a promotion as well at the end of it. Now, for all of us today, this passage is not a promise that every time we go through the fire, we will be unharmed. That is not the promise. But it's that God is with us. God is with us. Look at these incredibly beautiful verses from Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, um, when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. God's promise of his presence. He is with us at all times, in all places. You know, human beings will let us down. We will let other people down. We will even let ourselves down. But God will not let us down. He will always there. Are you looking for God's unchanging hand in your life at the moment? What evidence have you seen that you could bring to mind of God who has shown up in an unexpected place? I think so. sometimes we are so easy to forget what God has done, aren't we? We forget those little testimonies, yet those little testimonies of what God has done can then encourage us through the next fire, through the next period where it's tough. 
But there's another side of this as well that I just want to pick out as we come to the end of this passage. The fourth fourth person in the flames, whoever they are, whether it's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus, whether it's the angel of the Lord, they are tangible and visible. And God has sent a being to be with these people. Now, we are called to be church, aren't we? We are called to be the body of Christ. And we are called to be present for one another. We are called to be as Christ to each other. Look at this verse from Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. And it's just that real calling that we are called to be God's hands and feet. How seriously are we taking that call to be the fourth person in the flames? To be that fourth person to one another. You know, I can't be the fourth person to everybody. The pastoral team can't be the fourth person to everybody. But we can be that fourth person to somebody. We can be that to one another. Matthew 25, it says, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. You did it for me. Being, loving one another as unto the Lord. So what does that look like? Well, it can be something very simple. It can be saying, I'll send a text to somebody just to tell them I'm praying for them. Sending a card. There are some brilliant people in the church here who are great at sending cards. Taking a bunch of flowers around to somebody. Going and seeing somebody. Having a coffee. Going on a Zoom call. Whatever it might be. But as we receive from God who turns up in unexpected places, let's also be open to being the unexpected fourth person in other people's experience. And so this chapter draws to an end. We have all these events right at the end of the chapter with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, He's not a worshipper of the Lord just yet, but he's moving in that direction. He now at least acknowledges that God exists and that there is somebody greater than him. He's on that kind of journey. And sometimes, you know, when God walks with us through the fire, he can speak to other people as well. He can speak to other people of the goodness and the greatness of God. I just want to leave you with three thoughts this morning, and we'll just spend a few moments in quiet thinking these ones through. How confident are you that God is with you today? I don't know what your individual situations are, but how confident are you that God is with you? Are you looking for the hand of God in unexpected places? And are you willing to be God's hands and feet? Are you willing to be that fourth person in other people's lives? Let me just leave us some quiet and then I will pray for us. If the worship team could come forward, that would be great. Yeah, Lord Jesus, we thank you that by your Spirit, you are with us at all times and in all places. 
We thank you that when we go through the fires of trial, that you don't abandon us, but you walk with us. And Lord, I want to pray for each of these three areas today. I want to pray that in our church family, we will have an increased confidence that you are with us. An increased confidence that your spirit has been poured out and that you are present with us. And Lord, I want to pray that you will help us to notice when you are working in our lives. Lord, we just pray that you will give us eyes to see what the Spirit is doing. And Lord, as well, I just want to pray that you will help us to be willing to be your hands and feet in other people's lives. Help us to be prepared to be that fourth person. Yeah, Lord, we thank you for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you for their faithfulness to you, and thank you how this ancient narrative can speak into our hearts and lives today. Lord, you are so good. Your presence, your character, they never change. And we come and we gather and we worship your name.